Well, first, let me ask the panelists, is there something else that you would like to add in a couple of minutes that you didn't say and you think should be said after everything that's transpired? So, start with Wolfgang. I'm not going to fall for the temptation here. <laughs> okay, smart man. Doug? I basically said I basically said my piece. Um, I got a couple more slides. I could put them up if you want. <laughs> no, no PowerPoint. <laughs> Just one-dimensional oral communication. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, if you're coming to me, somebody's got to take the bait. So, um, let's see. A couple of thoughts. One is that it's only been mentioned uh, briefly, but this idea of fish tank virtual reality where you have sort of your own desk that, um, you know, through a 3D TV, essentially, I mean, same thing you get at Best Buy, uh, can become a stereoscopic screen, you know, and with some cheap camera sensing, you can track your head around it. And so I, that's one great example, I think, of how a little bit of this can make its way into um, actually the the work environment that we already have. Um, and so one thing that I think hasn't come up so much because we've been focused on the like the really high end of the immersive spectrum um, is this idea that there really is kind of a continuum, you know, and a lot of a lot of tools that are in the style of what we've been talking about um, could potentially work in, in environments that are, um, you know, at your desk. So I think there are cases where that's particularly useful, and then there are cases where, and, and might address some of the fatigue issues and things that have come up recently, and then there's cases where, you know, you want the experience, and you want your whole full body involved, and you want to be able to stand up and gesture um, and walk around things. And so I think, I just think there's a space here, and we need to pick the right, right points for the particular application. Yeah, let me, and I agree with this. We think of the desktop versions of VR as the gateway drug to the real VR. <laughs> so, 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 but at that point, I, I, sorry, if I can just say something. One of the things that really got me to think is that a lot of people seem to be using, especially towards the VR crowd, the, the, through the HTC Vive, they seem to be using the display, the, v, the HMD is in a seated posture, not standing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because you can do it for six hours, yeah. Yeah. whereas you're not going to stand six hours. Well, I think the other point, the obvious point to make is that none of us really talked about augmented reality, mm -hmm. right? And so VR automatically takes me out of my workflow, right? It automatically takes me out of the environment where I'm doing my work and where I'm collaborating with the guy sitting next to me at the desk and, and so on, right? So. AR is kind of the obvious, um, obvious choice to maybe in the future wear all day, right? And let's get rid of all these other displays, right? And just have virtual displays um, that I can use for this sort of activity or any other sort of work activity. Um, but I think that raises a whole lot of interesting questions as well. Um, so, you know, uh, when, I, when I get up and move somewhere else, how does my AR workspace move along with me? Um, how does it know about and take advantage of like the surfaces that are in the environment and so on. I think there's a lot of interesting questions there. But immersive analytics and AR is a valuable direction. I'll have Jonathan comment on that and then Alex can speak his piece. Hmm. 
as you were talking about the, uh, you know, making use of different displays, the idea of making use of all the different input methods um, connected together so that you are being able to use virtual reality, augmented reality, large displays, touch screens, handheld devices, all together participating in one coherent visualization and communicating um, because not, no single one of them is entirely the best use for everything, but combining them together, you can end up cooperating uh, to create, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, mixing multiple people along with computer AI to do that. You can make use of your whole space and m many different ways of selecting an input. For instance, 3D input is often a lot easier when you actually have a 3D mouse. Um, mice are more precise when you have a t 2D selection, but the minute you need to have that third dimension, they start falling flat. And so there's, there's aspects to, to each type of input and each type of display that uh, provide benefits. And so what do you think of that? I'm, I'm, I'm going to fall for that bait. <laughs> um, so what you, what you say is correct to some degree. One of the problems that you incorporate with 3D is that as things to recede into the distance, they get smaller. So pointing precision towards the distance actually gets more important. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, you can just navigate there and make the problem simpler. Sure, there's a cost to the navigation too. So you have to get there first, right? I mean, but if I have, if I want to select the person in the back row, I need much more, much more precision to I mean, regardless if it's 2D or 3D, right? Uh, the other, the other uh, point regarding that is one of the things that uh, I, I think needs to be out of the conversation is it's not just six degrees of freedom, but you also have scale. And being able to interact on scale gives you that seventh dimension that uh, if you've worked with something like Tilt Brush, right, without that seventh dimension, Tilt Brush just doesn't work. Yeah. Alex, you want to speak your piece? Sorry. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> sure. Um, Actually, it's probably just echoing what, uh, what Doug said towards the end of his mm -hmm. talk, which I thought was really refreshing, which was the idea that we can use VR as a, as a space to organize our knowledge, our information, as opposed to thinking of the virtual environment as a visual representation in and of itself, right? Now, yes, a spatial organization is a visual representation, but I wouldn't call the way I organize my bookshelf a visual representation. I just call it an organization of my stuff. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I just wanted to echo that as something that was nice. I would, I would add. I'll pay you off later. <laughs> uh, well, I just wanted to add. I mean, just as you guys were talking, I, I completely agree with that. But I would say even for the spatial data that that's needed, and I think the kind of comparison techniques that I was showing were, are essentially that organizing your space when you're working with spatial data. So. Yeah. Can I ask about that? I, I, I wasn't going to ask a question of your talk because I was coming up next, but. <laughs> But now's your chance. Yeah. Um, why do you think doing that sort of comparison in the cave is worthwhile? So what do you get from the cave? Is, is it just that you have the large space in order to lay out these visualizations? Well, so I guess I would go back. I mean, it's, I'm going to use your answers, essentially, to that question, <laughs> which are, uh, so the, uh, you know, we're looking at fluid flow. There's all these vortices and things like that, which are hard to see in the video, but it's pretty intricate flow patterns. And so being able to get in and sort of and move your head around um, and look at that in stereo, I think is important when you're at that detailed analysis level. 
um, but then there's also the sense of like, well, how does this fit into the larger context of all the things I'm looking at? And actually, when we first implemented this tool, we only had it running on the one forward wall of the cave. And so we got a chance, we didn't run a study, but we had a chance to sort of compare those two things. And it, it actually really changed the experience when you can see these in your periphery. And you have, I think it's just a sense of context where you are uh, relative to this. Um, because you're not really doing analysis with something that's five feet away, you want to pull it closer, but there's sort of a sense of like, oh, and I, yeah, I remember I put that one over there, and it kind of, you know, that's the one where it was moving fast towards the end of the heartbeat, and over here is where I've got these other ones, and, and you just, it never quite goes off your screen, you know, you sort of have a sense that it's there. Okay, you guys are having a lot of fun, but we should probably let audience ask a few <laughs> questions too, so. A quick question. So then uh, you give two examples. One of them was uh, kind of an artistic expression, creating shapes, which is like a, a sense-giving kind of exercise with not very high precision. Other one was exploring data, which is sense-making kind of exercise. Is there an attempt to kind of merge the two somehow, meet the middle, kind of creating something and imprecise, and then snap into like auto-tune for VR, like creating something precise from imprecise? Yes. I think that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly the direction I want to look at, really, going forward. And I've kind of gotten interested in this aspect of design. Design as, like, the, the ultimate task to support in these environments, you know, especially if it's data-driven design, because you have these data sets, could be supercomputer simulations, whatever, you know, whatever is relevant to your problem, and there's sort of you know, problem number one is how do I see this stuff in the first place? And maybe comparing alternatives is even part of, of that problem. But then it's like, you know, the ultimate task is based on what I'm seeing, how do I now adjust things, you know? And the thing that to me is so special about that is it's not just a standing around looking. It's you now have to get your hands into this thing, you know, and you have to ask questions. I mean. One of, one of my favorite examples is just doing a, a data selection. Let's say you're looking at neural fibers in the brain, okay, and it's this densely packed uh, spaghetti, <laughs> you know. How do you select a bundle of fibers that's interesting to you and say, hey, what is the linear anisotropy on this bundle, you know. And so to make that 3D selection, I mean, 3D selection, as these guys know, have been, has been studied tremendously within this this human-computer interaction community, but not really so much for bundles of neural fibers, you know? And that's different when you're in this complex space. And so I guess that problem is less about design, but I think it, it's, it leads into it, right? Because you're sort of, you're querying your data, you're asking questions, then based on that, of course, you wanna make refinements to something like a mechanical design. And how do you indicate that? And that gets you right back into sort of the sketching mode. And so. All these, to me, just sort of fit together, and the ultimate is sort of this environment where you're doing all the visual comparison, and mixed in with that is this process of creative human design, but in a data-driven way. And I think that's just like the, you know, that would be a, a fantastic environment to support that. One of the things that I want to point out, and this is, this is actually very interesting, and I think there's a, there's a strong insight there. The bento box uh, paradigm that you used is essentially a 2D grid. Even though you could have made it a 3D grid, you chose to show 3D data in a 2D grid, That's right. which makes perfect sense, right? 
and I can, I mean, I say you made the right design decision as far as I know, right? Uh, because if you take this and now you have many of these beating hearts right behind each other, suddenly you can't see anything anymore. Yeah, right? and we have so, a time dimension, but we chose not to put that in depth. Yeah. I mean, I think you'll find that the panel of us, we are used to coming from this academic community, we're used to having to defend the decision <laughs> to go into a 3D realm. Um, and particularly if we've been around long enough, we're very used to that because the first thing you had to defend was the expense. Um, and so nowadays, that's, as Doug was saying, that's less of a hurdle. And mm. there is sort of a leap to just say, oh, great, you know, it's, it's, it's working now. We'll put it in VR, throw it into 3D. And um, so I think there's, I mean, we see a lot of that. And, um, but I guess one of the takeaways maybe is to really think about how to design that 3D and when to use it. Um, and that's something that I think in the academic community um, through peer review, honestly, we've been really forced to sort of defend. Um, and so all the design decisions that we make are really based on. I'll never be able to see a bento box the same way again. <laughs> um, That's for lunch. Ah, sorry. We have a question there in the corner. Uh, all right. You're the boss. Uh, uh, looking forward 10, 15 years, have you guys thought of how to start using uh, the current technology, maybe VR, to kind of fake AR in a high resolution with the machines just blasting triangles and having objects in this VR environment. I know Logitech just came up with a, with a bridge so that you can actually have a full virtual reality keyboard that you, when you touch, it's actually there. Um, and that's just a side note as a plug-in for myself. Uh, I'm uh, uh, part of George's group, and we're doing a demo uh, later this evening. And we're actually doing a, several things that you guys talked about. One of them is actually have a headset while you're sitting at your chair. Mm -hmm. The next one is actually have uh, different models that are at different scales, uh, actual uh, physical scientific models that are, are the desktop size. You can throw it on the floor and it becomes floor size. You can walk around or you can just throw it out the window and it becomes what we call monument size. The room that you're in halfway disappears and you can kind of have the, 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 this monument kind of travel at you. And again, we're trying to emphasize the idea of this is a table and if you reach for it, you'll actually feel the table hopefully the keyboard, so you kind of keep this sense of, of presence that hopefully lets you sit down and work a lot longer. Okay. Shana? Oh, uh, can I respond to that? Uh, sure, but he's going to talk more about this in the afternoon. Oh, okay, well just a, a quick thing. Um, so we are, in my group, we simulate AR in VR all the time, not for the, not for the reason you mentioned though. So mm -hmm. we do it so that we can run controlled experiments mm -hmm. of, of AR systems, of future AR systems, right? So AR is just too, it's too early um, right now. The technology is not great yet. Uh, specs of, of displays are, are not where we want them to be, but we still want to be able to design those interfaces and evaluate them. So we simulate AR in VR. But I think in the future, it actually may go the other way. I would expect that we would all have AR displays that we wear all the time, and when we want to, we can just fill up that display with virtual content and enter a virtual environment. So I would go the other way. Shana. I guess a comment and a question. So just the comment being that 
we have to keep in mind that VR and AR are tools. It's a technology that will help us to do something. So the idea that you're gonna have fatigue or need to wear it all the time, I think is somewhat false. I think just as you were now mentioning, it's something that you may put on to look at something and then you take it off and use other types of tools. If you remember what cell phones looked like in the year 2000 versus what they look like now, that's sort of the equivalent. Uh, my question is, because I work a lot with uh, GIS and Earth data, one of the impediments that we often have is just getting the data into virtual reality quickly. So is that something that you could address, is how do we ingest data more quickly? How do we kind of make it VR ready or AR ready? Data. Yes. <laughs> Silence. I'll, 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 I'll just point out that the problem exists on a much more mundane level. Uh, anybody who's doing 2D visualization deals with data wrangling and, you know, it's 30, 50% of the work and nobody gets credit for it. Hmm. And they haven't found the problem, the solution in 2D either. It's also hard to publish papers on that, so academics tend not to work on it. Um, we assume that somebody will solve the problem at some point, but, but yeah. yeah, no, you're right. So, but it's a prerequisite for the stuff we do. So, um, for example, we just had a, a kickoff meeting for a new NSF grant a couple weeks ago, and and we got together, and my grad student, one of the and one of the staff members from the other site, just I mean, spend about three days integrating visualization toolkit VTK with Unity, the game engine, you know? And um, so one approach is to try to take some of the tools that can read a lot of data formats that exist now, like VTK, and, and build these bridges where they link with the kind of environments that, you know, my students with no programming background in a first year course can get a VR application up and running with Unity in a few weeks. You know, and so to have the power of the data reading and the isosurface generation and all these other things that exist in these scientific visualization packages, but then somehow link that in with uh, the game engine um, is pretty powerful. And right now, I think what's happening is everybody is re-implementing that for themselves uh, on their own. And, um, you know, unfortunately, like the scientific visualization doesn't have the same market as just the game. So it's not, you know, it's not as, as standardized. Um, but I think that's one approach is basically rather than reinvent like the game engine and reinvent the side of this software, figure out how to bring them together. Yeah, I, I totally echo Dan's yeah. comment. Um, one thing that I, I've been thinking about in, in terms of data ingestion and is all about standards. I don't, I don't think that we are at a stage or, or, or mature enough such that we have enough standards in the VR and AR world for us to work those kind, those kind of automations. And one day I think we, we hope we will and perhaps the um, academic you know, research can help us on, in that hmm. area as well. So I'm interested in, sorry. I'm interested in your thoughts on changing the um, the paradigm of how we go from uh, manifesting thought into something tangible, right? Pr primarily through design, but with the advent of things like Autodesk's regenerative design and and uh, and artificial mm -hmm. intelligence for for use of data to do machine design, right? I'm interested in the interface that comes from augmented or virtual reality. Um, into manifesting thoughts and requirements, right, without being able to go through the engineering process 
into manifesting it into a design product, right? Especially with the advent of multifunctionality and 3D printing and all that. So I, that's sort of how I see this going, right? Is first we interact with data, but then we start, right, inputting into the machine where the manifestation of things into reality becomes less cumbersome, if you will, right? A sculptor now in history has been someone who can manifest their artistic thoughts using a chisel on stone. What I want to do is I want to separate those two things. Is that something you guys think about? Well, I'll give you a very pragmatic answer. So you start with sketching. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a truth there. I mean, you mentioned chiseling the stone. They didn't chisel the stone. They started by sketching. Then they built the model out of clay, right? Before they even touched the marble. And rightfully so. And because you're working with mm. the physical there, you have to do some of the sp sp steps mm. in between. Now, you can sketch with a computer instead of pen and paper, but sketching is functionally different, <coughs> right? It is much more ephemeral and, and you know, it's, it's not as precise. And that's the point, okay? I mean, I, I've talked with a lot of people, you know, oh, can't you just sketch the design and it looks like perfect, AutoCAD. No, that's not the point. <laughs> You want to have ideas, you want to sketch multiple ideas, you know, to compare, I mean, exactly what was talked about earlier, right? I mean, to, to have these rough comparisons, what is the big picture issue, right? So there's a value there that I'm, I want to point out that if you kill that, you kill the exploration of the design space and thus come up with, a Japanese car designer said this once, uh, CAD is great because it builds beautiful cars but they're poor design because they haven't explored the design space, right? So I think this afternoon speakers will touch on some of those subjects. Pasak, um, you, you had a question? Uh, I have a question, and it's actually a great segue from this point Turn it on. onwards. Um, is it, okay, it's a great segue point. I was very inspired by your sketch application than the you know, draw the 2D sketch and bring it to the VR. I think we really need to think about this ecosystem. We all agree that we don't want to wear the goggles for six hours and try to replace everything we do on the desktop with this. And I don't have the same precision that when my, you know, hand rests on a surface at this angle, I get the highest precision to draw something very precise, right? Mm -hmm. But then it is very hard to kind of draw this fish in a specific 3D pose and imagine how it will be projected on this 2D plane. So then I might want to switch to VR, you know, make my fish in 3D, put it in a very specific pose and bring it back to 2D and tweak it some more. Like do these, like we have to think about these iterative things, like what is great to do in VR and what is great to do in like flat screens and again, you know, touching back upon the standardized file exchanges and this, that to be able to do this fluid workflow between these systems. Uh, do you have any comments on this? I'm so glad you picked up on that because to me it's, I mean, it's the first like simple example in this space, right? And, but I think everything that we're talking about here can kind of be summed up with how do you make these immersive environments work for people? You know, and this is such a critical aspect of that where um, you just can't go into, and these caves are perfect because it's like a dark 
cube. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's ludicrous if you think about it. Here, take this creative artist or whomever, and we're going to put you in a dark cube. We'll turn off all the lights, and then you wear these, like, sunglasses, you know, and now, like, all right, go, do your thing, you know, and it's like, I mean, what do you want from me? Uh, so, <laughs> but, you know, but, so why do we do that? So how do we, how do we connect that with the rest of our workflow, and you ought to be able to bring things in from outside, and you ought to be able to bring things out, yeah. and yeah. sort of make a loop out of it. Yeah. Dan, you, you're forgetting to. You can put a virtual window in the cave ah. and let some virtual <laughs> sunlight in, right? All right. No, well, but I, on that happy I do have a serious note. point. Go ahead. I, sorry. So the. I think you're right that there's different modes that are that are good for different tasks. That's that's clear, right? And we don't want to um, we don't want to mix those up or assume that we should always be in the fully immersive 3D mode or whatever. But as an interface designer, I think those mode switches have to be extremely lightweight, right? If if I have to get up and walk to another room, no go, right? If I even have to like stop what I'm doing, put down my devices, put on a headset, walk five feet, and pick up different devices, that's probably also a no go. Right, so I still think that we gotta be working towards this future where I've got something that's no, no more than the pair of glasses that you're wearing right now that I wear all the time um, and that flows just seamlessly between these different modes of working.